Well, good morning. Let me first say thank you for your support and your prayers and for having me to come preach the word to you this morning. Um, uh, we're going to begin in Psalm chapter 24, verses 7 through 10. Psalm chapter 24, verses 7 through 10. And so as you're turning there, let me say we'll... We'll do something a, a little bit different than what I normally would do. We're going to take more of a topical look at what we've entitled Delighting in God's Glory. But by doing it this way, we're able to see that from the very beginning to the very end, it's about God's glory. And then additionally, we should also note that there's a certain air of mystery about what God's Word is speaking to us about. Uh, speaking to us about. Uh, John Piper says that to describe God's glory is an attempt to put into words what cannot be contained in words. It's too much for us to fully understand. And so there's an, there's an element that we just can't understand what God is like in his unveiled magnificence. And so we pray this morning that we'll get just a small taste of God's glory and how beautiful of a thing it is. And so let's read. Psalm chapter 24, verses 7 through 10, starting in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and many of us are weighed down. We're wearied by the fall, by our sin, by hurts and pains, by struggles. Lord, we acknowledge those things before you, and we take them before you. <clears throat> this morning, but we ask in the midst of those, of those struggles and pains and hurts that we have, would you give us hope? Would you remind us that your glory is for us a great hope? Would you lead us to delight and rejoice in you and your glorious love for us? We pray that you will do these things by the power of your spirit through the preaching of this, your holy word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> When I was just barely in high school, I went to a, a weekend retreat with an organization called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And so they take us there, and then they put you in a group outside of the group that you came with. So I'm with, with, this, I'm with these random people, and I'm super shy, and I have no idea what to do with myself. And so I'm there, and it made me very uncomfortable, but then at the same time, it was a weekend of worship. Like, I had never really worshipped before. And so we were singing and putting our arms around each other, and we're pouring out our hearts to God. We're hearing God's Word, and we could say, oh, maybe it was too emotional, or it was too charismatic, or it was too whatever. But for my little ninth grade heart, it was a foretaste of God's glory. And when, I over, when we left, so we're leaving, you can imagine all these kids high schoolers leaving this retreat, I heard somebody saying, says, you could lock me away in the woods alone for the rest of my life, but if I had God, 
I know I would be happy. This guy, he's probably a baby Christian. He didn't know tons of theology or how we're in the church together as one body, but he got one thing right. Psalm 16 says, In his presence there is fullness of joy. As his right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be with God and to experience his glory is the only all-satisfying reality in the entire universe. Only God's glory through his presence. And so God's word for you this morning has one goal and one purpose. is to lead you to delight in God's glory alone. To love it. To know the all-satisfying reality that is the Lord's presence through his glory. Or, to put it another way, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so notice first that we're talking about delighting. We're talking about enjoying, rejoicing. It's not only knowing that God deserves glory, but it's loving it in your heart. We're connecting what we know in our head to what we have in our heart. And so we start first by laying ourselves open and bare before the Lord, taking our hurts to him, taking wherever we are in our lives to him and to say, Lord, here I am, teach me. And so our verse, let the king of glory in, we're saying to the king of glory, Lord, come, teach us, show us, change our hard hearts, show us how to delight and love, in you, love you. And so we start with a posture of openness. before, And then we go to the very beginning. Point number one is this. You are created for God's glory. The very beginning. So flip over to Genesis chapter 1. You are created for God's glory. And as you're turning there, we know that Isaiah 43, 7, it says, He formed and made you for His glory. And then we know that the psalmist in the book of Psalms says that heaven and earth declare the glory of God. And so then we see in Genesis chapter 1, Verse 26 through 28, we see, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, God is creating a world based on all the teaching of the Bible, God is creating a world that reflects himself because he is the king of glory. John Calvin says there's no spot in the universe where there is not at least some sparks of his glory. And so then we see in Genesis, at the pinnacle of creation, he creates man and woman in his own image. The image of the king of glory. You are created to be an image bearer of God's glory. And so do you want to know what your purpose in life is? What am I here to do? It's to be a mirror reflecting the glory of the king of glory. And how do you do that? Verse 28 in Genesis, God gives Adam and Eve, he gives us, humankind, through them, dominion or rule over the earth. Go out, subdue it, rule it for his glory. And so God is this great artist creating a world it grows in glory. He's saying, spread my glory all over the world. And then God places his people, mankind, humankind. He places them 
over the earth and says, rule it on my behalf. Rule it on God's behalf. And so you, a ruler under God, meant to go out to bring the world to glorify Him. So we go out to all the earth, every single area of life. We create things. We work the earth. We till the earth. We develop the earth with cities and towns and beautiful gardens. We are developing God's creation with the resources that He gave us. And we're fanning those sparks into a beautiful flame of the glory of God. That is what you're created to do, to reflect the glory of the King of glory. And it's in that that you find fulfillment and rest because you were made to do it. That's your purpose in being here. But we make the same mistake that Adam and Eve made oh so many years ago. In Genesis 3, just shortly after this, the serpent comes to Eve and he says, did God really tell you not to eat of the tree? Did he really mean that? Or maybe God's just holding you back. Satan says, if you reject God, if you turn your back on God, you can reflect your own image. Satan says to you, God wants the glory, and that's just selfish. He wants to keep you from being great and mighty and influential. Satan tells us, you can be the king of glory. You can make your own kingdom. And we believe it. Just like Eve, we believe it. We live selfishly. We turn our backs on God. We turn our backs on our neighbor. We seek our own good, our own fame, to make our own name great. And so point number two is this. You fall short of God's glory. Number two, you fall short of God's glory. Here we're going to turn to Romans Chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And we're seeing that sin is rejecting God's glory. 3.23 in the book of Romans says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This may be a super familiar verse for some of you, and so let's try to make it real to us. Let's try to make it come alive. Think about this. To fall short of something, we think, okay, you missed it. You fell short. You missed the mark. But there's something more. To fall short is also to lack something. And so, sorry, Coach Kowser, I actually have a basketball illustration. So, <laughs> But think about it. If you're playing basketball and it's the end of the game and you're down by two points and so you're going to shoot a three-pointer and you're going to win the game. And so you pull up, and you pump fake, and the guy goes flying by you, and you shoot, and the ball goes up, and everybody's saying, yes, we're going to win, and then it falls short. It's an air ball. Yeah, you missed the basket, but you also lost something. You lost the game. You didn't win the game. In the same way, you have had the glory of God. You could be doing the thing that you were created to do, but you don't. You turn your back on it. You miss the mark. You don't have the glory of God. You seek your own glory. Romans 1.23 says that you exchange, that's a key word, you exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. You exchange God's glory 
for things that are never going to be enough. And so ask yourself, what do I truly desire? What do I love most in this world? The opposite perspective is to say, what do I run to to calm my deepest fears? What is it that I need in my heart? The answer to those questions will tell you what you're really living for. And if the answer isn't the king of glory, then, you're made, then you've made what we'll call the suicidal exchange. You've exchanged something of infinite value and beauty, the, thing, the very thing you were created to do, and instead you run after some fleeting and inferior substitute. If you read the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 2, God says, Be appalled. Be desolate. Despair. Why? Because God's people have turned their backs on him. He says, how dare you turn away from the king of glory? How dare we turn away from the king? The campus minister, the RUF campus minister at Erskine, he tells this great illustration. His name is Paul Patrick, and he'll say, hey, do you know how to kill an Arctic wolf? Of course, you're like, no, Paul, I don't know how to kill an Arctic wolf. And he says, okay, well, let me tell you. And he says, all you need to kill an Arctic wolf is this. You need a decent-sized stick. You need a sharp blade. You need a small, dead animal. Okay? Now, here's what you do. You take the stick. You tie the blade to the end of it so it looks like a spear. Then you take your small animal that's dead, and you put the blood on the, on the blade. And then you take the blade out to the snow. You're in the Arctic. You freeze it on the blade, and then you bring it back, and you fill it, put some more blood on it, you take it out, and you freeze it, and you do this over and over until you have this spear with this frozen blood mast on it. And then what you do is you go outside, you stick your stick in the snow and let it sit there, and then you go to bed. You just go to sleep. Well, while you're asleep, the Arctic wolf, he smells the blood, and he's hungry. So he goes out finds a stick, and he starts licking the blood, and it's good. He wants more and more, and the more he licks, the more blood he gets, and the warmer the blood gets, and as he licks and licks, then he's bleeding. Then he's licking his own blood, and he's literally killing himself, but the hunger for more leads him back to lick and to lick and to lick. See, Satan has us out here feasting on our sins, and it's killing us. It's killing us. It's a gross illustration, and that's the point. Our sins are gross. Satan comes and says, God is just selfish. He wants all the glory. He wants to hold you back. He's just keeping you from living the good life. In John 8, Jesus himself says, Satan is a murderer and a liar, a murderer and a liar. He wants you out there looking at your own sins. That's what he wants you to be doing. He wants you to think, that's going to make me happy. Oh, I can see how close I can get to the line. I know that I should stop this, but it's really hard, and I don't know that I really want to give it up yet. That's where Satan wants us. 
He wants us to make the suicidal exchange, to exchange the glory of the immortal God for mere images made by man, things that will never be enough. And so you turn your back on the one thing that you truly need, and that's redemption. Point number three, you are redeemed for God's glory. You are redeemed for God's glory. Turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. I'll start in verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory." Okay, so the great lie from Satan, the father of lies, is that God is selfish for wanting to be glorified. But that is utterly impossible. The king of glory, our God, is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity. And so the Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father, and the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. And it's this beautiful picture of Father, Son, and Spirit outwardly giving glory and love. See, God is love because He's always been loving. There's nothing selfish about the love of the triune God. The triune God exists in perfect love, in perfect harmony, in perfect peace, in perfect justice. And so, let's ask this question. What would God give us that would best portray His love and show His glory. Another way to put it, I talk about this in our youth group back in Huntersville all the time. I say, to truly love someone is to want what is truly and actually best for them. That's how you truly love someone. And so for God to maximally demonstrate His love for us, He would give us the most glorious thing to ever exist. Himself. He would give us Himself. And he does it. That's the crazy thing. He does it. You see, the second person of the Trinity, he took on flesh. He came down to earth and did what we did not do and could not do. John 17, 4 says that Jesus glorified the Father while on earth. We make the suicidal exchange. We chase after our glory. But Jesus, the God-man Jesus, came to earth and gave the Father all the glory in every thought, word, and deed. And then he literally gave himself for you. He died the death that you should have died. You sinned. You were under the wrath of God. You had a price to pay because you sinned. And Jesus comes and says, I'll take it. Yes, I live perfectly, but I will take 
that punishment. I will take that wrath of God. Why? Because I want to give them my righteousness. I want to take them who don't deserve it, and I want to step in and say, I will give it to them. I will pay the price. I will live their life to obey. I will do what they could not do. And then I will bring them up to commune, to have a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You see, your redemption screams the glory of God. Look at verse 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 4, excuse me, right here in Ephesians. Just look up to verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before you could ever do anything to earn salvation, he chose. That's what it says. He chose. Then, okay, theoretically, you're born into the world, you get your theoretical chance. Well, you've already blown it, you have sinned. Which one of us can stand before God and say, I have never sinned? None of us. We can't. And so that's the great gift of salvation. Christ comes, obeys. Christ comes, pays the price. Christ comes, gives you His righteousness by sending His Spirit who turns you away from the suicidal exchange, brings you back to Him, and then says, all you need is faith. Receive Christ and rest in Him and you will be saved. Your salvation screams God's glory because you didn't do it. Christ did it. And He gives it to you as a gift. He says, here, take what is mine, and I give it to you. The inheritance that I was due for the obedience of Christ, Christ says, you can have it. Join me in heaven with the Father and the Spirit. Why? Because He loves because He shows us His glory and His wonderful love when we don't deserve it. And so if all of this is true, if God's glory is demonstrated in Him giving us Himself, then we can say God's glory is our highest good. The best thing for you is God's glory. It is the best thing for you. Now that's something to rejoice in. That's something to delight in. God's glory is your good. Delight in it. Love it. Rejoice in it. But here's the thing. If you stop there, Paul says you haven't gone all the way. You haven't fully understood if you only stop there. As if that's not good enough, Paul says you're one day consummated into God's everlasting glory. This is point number four. You're one day consummated into God's everlasting glory. Okay, I want us to look back at Ephesians 1 again because I think there's something that we might have missed or just glanced over. Look at verses 13 to 14, back in Ephesians 1. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory." See, Paul says when he writes Ephesians, all this redemption that you have that is so beautiful and wonderful, it's still not the culmination of what God has predestined to do for his people. When you come to Christ, 
you're given the Holy Spirit to lead you in God-glorifying works, to comfort you, to be with you, to unite you to Christ Himself. But yet, Paul says the Spirit is just a down payment. Just a down payment. Just the very beginning of what's to come. Your redemption right now is just a down payment that promises that more and more is coming. One day, you'll acquire possession of your entire inheritance in Christ. All of it. So what is this inheritance that you receive in Christ that's given to you by your loving God, the King of glory? Well, look at Ephesians 2, 6-7. through Just look at the other side of the page. 6-7, through and Christ raised us up with Him, that is Christ, and seated us with Him, that is Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Entire inheritance is to be with Christ in the coming ages, where God is going to show you the surpassing immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness in Christ. Did you catch that? The Father uniting you to His Son so that in the coming ages, in the new heavens, in the new earth, this is when you receive a second resurrected body, when there is no sin, when our sins and our pains and our hurts and our, all of these circumstances that are holding us down in this life, they will be gone. There is no more sin and the new heavens and the new earth. That's it. And so we see redemption and our salvation now. We see it, but we see it darkly. We don't see it perfectly clearly because sin is holding us back. In the new heavens and the new earth, it's like open the curtains, yank the blinds up, the light comes in, and you see Christ's glory. There is nothing holding it back. There is no sin. And when there's nothing holding it back, then God is going to show you something that is immeasurable. What's immeasurable? God's glory is immeasurable. It's an immeasurable, ever-flowing tsunami of grace and kindness. So let's think about this. Remember, we're connecting our heads to our hearts. God is infinite. Always has been, always will be. Goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. God is infinite. His majesty and His glory goes and goes and goes. He is the King of glory. But you and I, me and you, we're finite. We were created here. We passed away here. We're finite creatures. We're not infinite. We haven't always been. And so we can never know everything. We can never fully understand forever both ways. We can't quite wrap our minds around that. And so if God's glory goes and goes and goes forever, if we can never fully grasp God's glory, then what will eternity be? It will be nothing less than exploring the immeasurable riches of God's grace forever. In C.S. Lewis's the Chronicles of Narnia series. The last book is called The Last Battle. They've finally gotten to the end of all these stories, and they've been brought to what he calls the new Narnia, which is like pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. They're in the new Narnia. It, create, it contains everything good from the old Narnia, but it's even better. And then Lewis says this. 
Listen to this. He says, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. It was just the down payment. The beauties and wonders of this, it's just the down payment. He goes on, now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Brothers and sisters, we go further up and further into God's glory and love and grace forever. The pastor John Piper puts it this way, it will take an infinite number of ages for God to be done glorifying the wealth of His grace to us. The new heavens and the new earth are nothing less than a never-ending, ever-increasing discovery of more and more and more of God's glory with greater and greater and ever greater joy and delight in Him. If you know Christ, that is your destiny. That is what Christ predestined to do for you before the foundation of the world. He said, I'm going to show them my love and kindness, and I'm going to do it for the rest of eternity, and they will know my glory. Wow. Oh, I, talk about more than we can put into words. You can't. You can't put it into words because it's God's glory. And so what do we say? We say, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. He is the King of glory. Oh, my friends, do you know this King of glory? Do you know the King of glory that created you? Do you know the King of glory that you fall away from? Do you know the King of glory who gave himself for you to redeem you? And do you know the King of glory who will show you the immeasurable riches of his grace forever? As we go from sermon into the Lord's Supper, let this table... Let this table be your call to come to Christ. Do you want to know God's glory? Do you want to see God's glory? Then see it here in the body and the blood of Christ, where His love was demonstrated to us on the cross as Christ gave Himself for sinners like me and you. He gave Himself. Jesus says to those of us, me, you, who have fallen short, he says, come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. He says, come to me, all who are hungry, and I will give you food. Jesus Christ is the only thing that can satisfy that gaping black hole in your heart. Only he will be enough. And he's here. He's here through the presence of his Holy Spirit. In this supper with the body and the blood of Christ, symbolized in bread and wine, the Spirit unites you to Christ. That's why you can only come when you know Christ, because you are, you are united to Him to commune in fellowship with Christ. And so when you take this supper and you are experiencing, remembering God's glory manifest 
and the cross of Christ. What are you doing? You have a foretaste, a foretaste of God's glorious presence. And what does that foretaste do? It points you forward to the consummation where it will be forever of feasting on God's presence, forever of being with Christ. And so you come to this table, you are doing something. You are experiencing God's glory through the power of His Spirit. And so let this be your call. Taste and see that the Lord is good and come to Him today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to give your life to Christ. There is no waiting. There is no, I'll do it tomorrow or later. Now. Now is salvation. Christ speaks through His Spirit and He says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Come to Me today. And He says, Give Me your life and your all. And when you do this, God's glory is manifest in the entire universe in heavens and in earth. And so what do we say to all of this? It will all be done to the praise of His glory. Amen? Amen. The officers will come forward and we'll, we'll pray. Father, if we could just have you, we know we would be happy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Would you teach us this truth? Will you connect our heads and our hearts so that we delight in your glory, so that we long for your glory, so that we live for your glory? Make us turn to you and feast on your presence and on the immeasurable riches of your grace that you have shown to us. Would you do this today, all for your glory, and in Christ's name, amen.